0: The Guardian.
1: Hello, I'm Michael White and this is Guardian Daily. I'm in Westminster where George Osborne is sharpening his axe after David Cameron's big speech yesterday. George Osborne is coming in as the second half.
2: And it's about time the Labour Party understood that they left behind us behind them the largest budget deficit in the European Union Absolutely. the largest budget deficit in the G20. All over the world people are looking at sovereign credit risks and this government is determined to do something about it before people start looking at Britain.
1: And we'll also hear later from Geoffrey Robinson, uh, one of Gordon Brown's original Treasury team who helped to draw up the new banking regulations both before and after uh, Labour won its first landslide in 1997.
3: The plain fact is, as we all know, the bankers weren't tightly enough regulated but equally they were extremely responsible in their behaviour.
4: I'm John Dennis at The Guardian's HQ. Today in the US, a series of primary elections are taking place. We'll be hearing from
0: Gary Young on the rise of the Tea Party. Actually, what's happened in Florida is that the Republican The Republican establishment candidate has gone off to run as an independent. And one of Britain's most successful businessmen, Sir Terry Leahy, is
4: to step down as Tesco's chief executive after 14 years running the UK's biggest supermarket chain.
5: And when he did take over, their sales were about 15 billion. They're now about 60 billion.
1: This is Michael White in Westminster on the day when one of the big major uh, credit rating agencies, Fitches... Has uh, warned the UK it's got to get its budget uh, deficit under control or may lose its AAA rating, uh, part of the sovereign debt crisis. Uh, and of course, it's also the day when uh, George uh, Osborne had his debut as Chancellor at the, uh, on the Treasury front bench, faced by Alistair Darling, challenged by Alistair Darling, as he defended uh, the government's plans for urgent and early cuts, about which economists are
3: deeply divided, as are politicians. It is not just uh, what we did during the recession, it is the fact that over the ten-year period uh, we saw an unprecedented uh, decade of growth, which this country had not seen before, we saw low interest rates, we saw low inflation, we saw falling unemployment. GDP per capita grew faster in this country than any other G7 country, even after you take into account the effects of the financial crisis, Uh, and the the economic environment was such that this country had not had for many, many years, then of course we had to deal with the the effects of the the banking crisis and the downturn that followed that, which had a very severe effect on our public finances as well as public finances in other parts of the country. Mr Chancellor of the Exchequer.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, um, <clears throat> Thank you very much Mr Speaker and uh, I enjoyed what sounded very much to me like a valedictory speech by the uh, shadow Chancellor going through all the decisions he took explaining to the House why they were all right and of course I paid com- uh, a tribute to him in Treasury questions uh, for the work he did during that period which was uh, clearly a very stressful period but it was pretty extraordinary that he didn't once accept that he had made a single mistake during those uh, three years, that he didn't once apologise for all his good manners for the fact that he has bequeathed the incoming government with the worst inheritance any British government has faced since the Second World War. I guess he's entitled to do that. I would only say this to uh, the people who are standing for the leadership of the Labour Party. As far as I can tell, Uh, from their contest at the moment. They seem to think that they just didn't speak enough about immigration and Europe in the uh, uh, campaign. (laughs) Can I tell him, I've done that campaign and I didn't get the medal. Perhaps the leadership contenders are at some point going to turn their attention to the very serious economic problems that this country faces and tell us what they would do, what they would cut, Uh, The motion which we're being asked to vote for tonight says, this is the motion put down by the Leader of the Opposition and the Shadow Chancellor, uh, that we need a clear plan to bring down the deficit. I agree with that. I'd happily vote with with the uh, Shadow Chancellor if he could perhaps tell me what his clear plan to bring down the deficit exactly is, because as far as I could tell, he opposed every single decision that we've taken to try and reduce the deficit.
1: George Osborne and Alistair Darling there, being very civil to each other personally, but uh, uh, deep and sharp divisions of opinion. Right, let's see who we can find in Portcullis House, where Phil Maynard, um, our producer, and I loiter. Ah, here comes Geoffrey Robinson, great ally of Gordon Brown. Treasury Minister in the early days of the Blair Brown government was forced to leave office when Peter Mandelson's large mortgage from Geoffrey Robinson was exposed. 1998. Jeffrey Robinson, what do you make of the way Cameron and uh, 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 Clegg and George Osborne, speaking today, have presented their case for the cut so far?
3: Well, it's not a bad effort. Um, I don't know how far they'll get in trying to get a serious nationwide engagement as to where the cuts should fall and how differentially you would spread the burden. I'm not sure. Let's wait and see. They, they clearly hope to do that. I have my doubts, I think at the end of the day people want the government to say and will judge the government on how it performs in making those difficult decisions. How
1: how much are they sort of putting the frighteners on us so that when they actually do it we'll feel oh it wasn't quite as bad as they said, they're behaving a bit like a city firm manipulating
3: perception of its annual profits? All uh, losses. Well, managing expectations, isn't yeah, it, in the a negative I'm sense. For. I'm not sure about that. I, I really don't know. I can't read into their minds very much. Certainly they want to heap as my I think the bigger motivation and all that really, they want to make sure they've got all the blame firmly uh, and more than enough firmly laid on the previous government and that's what that lot's about, I think, as much as anything else. But don't forget, going back to your first point, it was Nye Bevan, wasn't it, who said, to governors to choose... It's really for the government to choose. I'm trying to involve people. It comes out they're trying to funk it, but it won't really solve the problem for you them. You seem
1: very philosophical because what David Cameron did in his speech this week, yesterday, was to dump the whole lot on Gordon Brown. He didn't no. mention the uh, uh, banking sector at all. It was all the government creating a structural deficit, government wasting
3: money uh, since the recession began, piling on the debt. I mean, that's what he's out to do, isn't he? The time will tell. We'll soon see. At the moment, there's no good saying, trying to argue the opposite. Let him have his day in the sun where he can do that. But the plain fact is, as we all know, the bankers weren't tightly enough regulated, but equally they were extremely responsible in their behaviour. You were part of the team which set up the, right at the beginning of the Labour government,
1: set up the tripartite regulatory structure, Bank of England Financial Services Authority and
3: the Treasury. Are you saying that you didn't quite get it right or that people fell down on the job? Fell down on the job, largely, yeah. And, Mark, the politicians who set it up did as well. We went in for light-touch regulation and we didn't regulate at all where it was all happening in the investment bank side. There hadn't been that problem in the UK or Europe or America for some year, for many years, decades, there hadn't been that problem. So I think the basic division was right. I think what they're doing now is quite unnecessary. I think effectively they'll only confirm and emphasise the banks, the Bank of England's overriding responsibility for the system as a whole, the integrity of the system as a whole, which we didn't take away from them. I remember speaking with Eddie George. The only question here was that we should recognise it very strongly in the legislation and provide him some money for handling it, which we did. So that was never a question. But I think it's good to bring that out. But to do with the rest is quite unnecessary.
1: Well, it's not directly a cuts matter, but it is important in terms of macroeconomic management. George Osborne appears to be stuck on the idea of uh, restructuring the Financial Services Authority, putting it in with other
3: forms of regulation. City is a bit uncomfortable with yeah, that. It's idea. a complete waste of time. It's a muddle. It won't be any good. At the end of the day, you'll find a situation where largely the regulation of individual banks will be back with the FSA in some relationship, perhaps closer with the bank, and the bank will have its overall s- systemic response It's responsibility for a systemic collapse. That's the division. That's what we made. Perhaps we're not in every... Er, not in every dividing line will be quite clear enough and emph- emphatic enough about the responsibilities that remain, but the division was good and the bank, I think, has been a success.
1: One way or another, expecting quite a severe fiscal tightening from the new Chancellor. Do we expect uh, monetary policy to be tightened as well, interest rates to go up, and would that uh, be helpful or in stemming incipient inflation, or would it uh, push us back into a double-dip recession?
3: I think we haven't had double dip yet, we can't go back to that. But would it push us into it would it push us into double dip recession? It could do and I think that's a big risk. And whilst not having been privy to the entire feelings of the international banking community, if all we're trying to do is be credit-worthy of them and cutting, irrespective of what the needs of our economy are, I speak here of the UK and of Europe, then I think it will be a mistake, and we are running a profound risk of going back into recession, just as we're on the verge, and it's tentative, verge of resuming growth.
1: And back in the chamber, George Osborne's number two, that's the second number two, of course. Danny Alexander took over from David Laws barely a week ago. Uh, had his first outing too as a, a minister young man who's come a uh, long way very fast at 38 uh, he had an easy Uh, ball bowled to him by Richard Harrington, uh, Tory MP for Watford. We met him during the campaign and since property developer from North London who gave him an easy ball about cutting down uh, waste in the government and hoping the new government would do better. Here's what Danny Alexander said to him.
4: Uh, Well he's right about waste and inefficiency and consultancy is not the only example. Uh, I can give him two or three more. The the biz department Spent £12,000 on branded golf balls over three years (laughs) The Ministry ministry of Defence spent £232,000 on eight paintings in a single year the Department for Communities and local government has spent £6,000 on deluxe espresso coffee machines for nine new but empty regional fire control rooms. <laughs> and you can rest assured that the actions that we take will ensure that that kind of waste and inefficiency is, will never happen again.
1: So far so good, Danny Alexander. But whoops, here comes the second question from Labour's Tom Watson, himself a former minister. Here's a bouncer for Danny Alexander. Duck, minister.
3: Is Andy Coulson a consultant? How much are you paying him?
0: He uh, the the,
4: the uh, uh, he works in Number Ten Downing Street, and I will I will give him give
1: the honourable gentleman a, a full response if he wants it. Now I'm going to head back to Portcullis House and hang out, see see who else I can find. Now here's somebody I haven't seen since the election. It's Margaret Beckett. Uh, Labour veteran, former acting leader, former foreign secretary, uh, an MP for well over 30 years on and off, and she's heading towards us with her husband, Leo. Leo Beckett must be well over 80 by now. They are inseparable. Uh, He even had a desk in her office across in Whitehall. Very devoted couple. Leo doesn't speak to us, but he is a man of powerful political views. Let's see what Mrs Beckett, who speaks for both of them, has got to say. Is it your assumption that the big risk in this coalition lies on the Lib Dems, whom history would suggest, going into coalition with the bigger party, you tend either to split or to be absorbed? That's about right, isn't it?
6: I don't think there's any doubt at all that the risk is for the Lib Dems because there are already a lot of people who feel desperately let down, and as time goes on, they come and say on, that to
1: you, do they? Oh yes, even to you, yeah,
6: even to us, yeah. yes. Uh, well, I mean. And you've only got to cast your mind back to the general election campaign itself. Quite a lot of people on the doorstep who were saying, I've genuinely not made my mind up because I'm waiting to see the leadership debates. But whose reaction was, but by the way, and so I'm thinking I might vote for the Libs, but of course I don't want the Tories back. Now, any of those people who voted Liberal must be feeling bitterly let down.
1: You were in Parliament in 1979 when Labour government went out in difficult circumstances, not like the present one, but not completely uh, unlike them. Margaret Thatcher got a majority, but at that time there were a lot of nationalists and liberals who thought they might hold the balance of power, and of course didn't.
6: Well, one of the things that I think a lot of people have, well, a lot of people have not known, and, and others have forgotten, is that in 1979 it was basically the Scots Nats who triggered the election by um, turning against us in a vote of confidence and they really believed that they were going to come back with greatly increased numbers. They were absolutely confident of it and of course they were nearly wiped out.
1: Very interesting moment. I don't know if you were in the chamber yesterday when Nick Clegg was putting forward the case for constitutional reform. Jack Straw was giving him a hard time. Uh, Mr. Clegg determined to tell Parliament first announced yet another committee to reform the House of Lords. Got a report by December the three big parties will be on it, he said, and the uh, Scott Nats erupted and so did the Democratic Unionists. The majority of parties, said uh, uh, Pete Wishart, the SNP MP, in this House, the majority of parties have not been consulted and it's all wrong. And it was a sort of Mr Clegg was surprised and slightly taken aback. That sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it?
6: It sounds incredibly familiar. Um, And one of the things that I said in the last Parliament, towards the end of the last Parliament, was to remind colleagues that it's all very well, talking as if everything can cosily be organised, but that actually there are quite a number of parties. They have different points of view. And one of the things I well remember about this closing stages of the 74-79 You've been Parliament. you leader of the
1: House and um, chief whip and everything.
6: Well, not chief whip, but leader of the House and shadow leader, yes. But one of the things I will remember is that when we had that plethora of nationalist parties towards the end of the 74-79 Parliament, they bitterly resented any assumption that the Liberals spoke for them as the leaders of the third parties.
1: That's all from me in Westminster. Over to John Dennis, back at Guardian HQ.
4: Thanks, Mike. Still to come, life after Leahy. What happens to Tesco after its chief executive steps down? But first, in the United States today, there are primary elections in 12 states, including California, Arkansas and Nevada. It's a test of strength for the Republican Party's insurgent grassroots movement, the Tea Party. These are anti-government, anti-tax and spending, anti-welfare and anti-illegal immigrants. And they've been spurred to action by Obama's victory in 2008. Guardian columnist Gary Young explains what inroads the Tea Party hopes to make in today's
0: primaries. The main one today will be in Nevada, where they will be trying to take over from the uh, establishment candidate and claim the mantle for the Republican Party against the Democratic Senate leader, Harry Reid. Now, the Republican desire to win Harry Reid's seat is totemic. It's, you have to think of the Tories trying to get Ed Ball's seat, or in this case, more like a Gordon Brown seat, really, that Harry Reid is the leader of the Democrats in the Senate. The Republicans loathe him and Nancy Pelosi, who is the leader of the Democrats in the House. They've got no chance of ousting Pelosi. But the polls have shown that they could beat Harry Reid. Now, interestingly, Harry Reid is hoping that the Tea Party do win because the polls show that if the Tea Party candidate does win, he stands a better chance of retaining his seat. Because is that because the the appeal of the the Tea Party is confined to the right wing fringes? In this particular case, it might be yes. I mean, in previous primaries over the last uh, six weeks or so, what we've seen is the Tea Party really make significant gains in. There was a question at one stage about whether the Tea Party would sort of siphon off and become a third party. But what, actually, what's happened in Florida is that the Republican the Republican establishment candidate has gone off to run as an independent. So it's the Republican establishment who's running as a third party in Florida, where Rubio um, overtook Charles Christ. Christ was a moderate Republican candidate. And the Republicans just, uh, the Republican base just didn't like him. He knew he couldn't win. So he, he left the party. Um, the Tea Party won in Kentucky. They ousted a candidate in Utah. And they're really becoming a predominant, if not dominant, faction within the Republican Party, shifting it to the right. The question is, are they going to shift it so far to the right that they make it unelectable? Where Tea Party candidates have been successful in gaining power, have they been able to
4: retain their stance of being anti-establishment outsiders?
0: Well, we're still... Uh, Trying to find out, really, because it's early days. In Kentucky, what we saw with the election of Rand Paul as the candidate was him make a series of gaffes right at the beginning. He said that, talking about civil rights, he said he thought that restaurant owners should have the right to refuse a service to black people if they wanted, which people were were stunned by. He also said that he didn't like the way that Obama was attacking BP over the oil spill in the Gulf. He thought it was un-American. And so, I mean, clearly he's got a lot of training to do before he's kind of oven ready for the heat of the electorate. But interestingly, the biggest claimed prize was um, Scott Brown in Massachusetts that denied the uh, Democrats their supermajority of 60 in the Senate. And Brown has twice in key moments voted, not with most of the Republicans. That was claimed as a big Tea Party victory. He didn't exactly align himself with the Tea Party, but he didn't distance himself from it either twice, once over jobs, once over uh, financial regulation. Brown has defied the majority of the Republican Party and voted with most of the Democrats, which suggests that he at least understands that the voters of Massachusetts want him to come back with some constructive story about what he's done. And what the Tea Party is, is a collection of Primarily, I think the last poll I saw was 98% white, slightly wealthier than average, slightly more educated than average people who are angry at politics and their anger kind of defines them. It's useful because it mobilizes them, but it's also kind of a bit scary for independents and, um, uh, you know, for, for moderates. The key question about how well they do is really going to come down to not just them, but Obama. If Obama can deliver, first of all for his base, so that... Democrats will come out and vote in November. And secondly, if he can deliver for people who, you know, I met this woman in Kentucky um, in December. And, you know, she said, I don't know much about the Tea Party, but Obama hasn't done much for me. You know, he's done a lot for the car companies. He's bailed out these big banks. But, I mean, what's he done for me? And it's that kind of person that Obama has to kind of win over by delivering real things. The healthcare thing is a start. The economy is picking up, so maybe that will help. The financial regulation is important, but a little bit esoteric in terms of money in people's pockets. And now he's got this oil spill, which he needs to show that he's in charge of events. And that, as much as whatever the Tea Party do, will determine whether, once they win in the Republican Party, if they can win among the electorate as a whole. And you can
4: follow the results of the primaries with The Guardian's Richard Adams on his live blog tonight from 12 midnight UK time. Now, Sir Terry Leahy has said he'll quit as chief executive of Tesco, Britain's biggest supermarket chain. He'll be 55 when he steps down next March to focus on private investment. He'll be replaced by Philip Clark, the company's international director. Tesco's chairman, David Reid, says Leahy's undoubtedly one of the leading businessmen of his generation. The Guardian's city editor is Julia Finch, and she
5: says Leahy's achievements at Tesco have been considerable. I think that um, when the history comes to be written of Terry, Terry's years at Tesco, everyone will agree that they were pretty successful. If you look at at Tesco when he moved in, I think it had just become Britain's number one grocer. It had just taken over from Sainsbury's. And actually it had taken over from Sainsbury's because Terry had introduced the, as a marketing director before he took charge, he'd brought in the club card. And that brought hundreds of thousands of new customers into Tesco. And he took over as uh, chief executive. And when he did take over, their sales were about 15 billion. They're now about 60 billion. Their profits were about 750 million. And they're now nearly three and a half billion. And their market share of the UK grocery market was 15%. And it's now nearly a third.
4: So hence he's... Britain's most successful businessman. How will Tesco cope without him?
5: I think Tesco will manage quite well without him. Actually, he's got a really strong team um, underneath him, and it's been the same team for probably ten years. There's three or four key deputies, key lieutenants, and one of the those guys, because they were all guys apart from one woman. One of those guys was always going to be his successor, and it was really just a sort of an X factor contest over the past three or four years to decide which of those guys would take over, and Phil Clark has risen to the top. In fact, if you'd asked me about sort of two to three months ago to pick one, I would probably have said Phil Clark, only because when Tesco do events, um, you know, like opening new stores or showing off ranges, suddenly it was Phil Clark. He's been there his entire career. He's about 50. He's a Liverpudlian, just like Terry is. Uh, but he's a Liverpool fan rather than an Everton fan. And he's, he's run all different parts of the business. He started off st- stacking shelves, he's been a store manager, he's been a buyer, and most recently he's been masterminding the international expansion uh, going into China and India. What about Tesco's expansion into America? Because that's not gone quite as planned, has it? No, it hasn't, not at all. That was really Terry Leahy's baby. And the idea was to build a business on the West Coast as big as the core business in the UK. The UK currently generates 70% of profits. So he thought he could do the same in California. I mean, they're still there and they're still expanding, but they're expanding at half the rate that they thought they were going to. They went into California and into Nevada and Arizona, just at the time when you know, the recession struck, when the financial collapse happened. Also, they, you know, they went in in quite an arrogant way, trying to take a British way of shopping into the States, and they've had to change it. Uh, they've had to sell bigger packs, bigger portions. They lost £160 million last year.
4: You've said that there is a wealth of talent at the top of Tesco. Will there now be an exodus of disappointed executives?
5: I think it's highly likely that those two or three very top guys... who'd who'd had ambitions to be chief executive, will now depart. They will now be ambitious to be chief executive of a big company and they will be number one port of call for any headhunters out there, in the UK or abroad, because Tesco is so highly rated. It's regarded as a business school. Julia Finch.
4: Now, back to Michael White at Westminster.
5: Well, that's it for the day. Uh, George Osborne has had his first
1: outing. Um, I thought he was very consciously uh, consensual, trying to say, we want to consult everybody, get this right, get all the best brains in the country, even the trade unions, he said, which must have strained him a bit. Uh, But it wasn't all uh, uh, gloom and doom in my day. Uh, I managed to pop out for an hour or so at lunchtime uh, to a lunch event organised by Sky Television. What are they doing? They're putting together another silly but enjoyable idea. They're annual uh, deck of cards, Top Trumps, and I was on a panel, other journalists and uh, uh, Sky staff uh, deciding who are the 30 most up-and-coming, thrusting, important, glamorous, etc., etc., MPs in the new parliament who ought to be in this Top Trumps uh, uh, deck of cards, and um, we um, we all put up our 30 names, and then we edited a few out, and then we put a few more back in for balance, and then we quarrelled over uh, several of the names and we said, come on, we've got to have uh, a really glamorous MP under 40. Tut, tut, tut. They did say that. They really did. And we've got to have a Scotsman. And uh, uh, do we think Frank Field is a better bet uh, than uh, uh, Patrick Mercer, uh, the defence specialist? Frank Field, of course, going to work for the government, uh, uh, the Labour maverick MP? And it was that kind of conversation, uh, and I Had a nice bit of steak and a glass of wine. Um, The results will be published quite soon, and along with some trenchant comments written by the panelists, including me, but fortunately they're anonymous. I hope you'll join us again tomorrow. This is Mike White for Guardian Daily.
5: Guardian Daily news and reports from around the world.